Well, greetings. Welcome to the Divine Line. We're going to have Radio Free Geneva starting up here in a few minutes. Uh, don't worry, we will have the full theme song for those of you who are addicts. Um, Tim Bushong fans and um, Tim's mom, um, his second cousin, they they like it too. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, we will be doing Radio Free Geneva. We'll be con- continuing and finishing the um, uh, response to Jason Breda on John chapter 6. But... Uh, just needed to, and I'm going to expand on these things tomorrow, uh, hopefully, in a sort of remote-controlled uh, version of the dividing line, I think. Anyway, uh, obviously, everyone is talking about uh, what happened on uh, Tuesday. And let me just say that in, you know, just today I've been trying to, I tried to reason with a millennial-looking, maybe younger uh, woman on uh, Twitter, there simply isn't any moral formation. There's no ethical foundation in the younger generations. They just, if they are a product of the public indoctrination system, that part of their makeup has been um, not just twisted, but done away with. And the idea of thinking within proper categories, making proper category connections, avoiding improper category connections, it's just not even there. Um, I asked her, you know, one of the first basic questions you have to ask is the child in the womb human, canine, bovine, feline, human? And she knew where you could tell she knew exactly where I was going. So she was just like, I'm not even gonna get into that. And besides, you don't care about the babies after they're born. And no adult, no rational person reasons like that. That every, every rational person who who has been trained to think logically, to understand the rules of logic and argumentation, knows that that's a completely invalid argument, but all you have to do is watch pretty much every single video that anyone makes on a college campus. And you realize that the next generations don't think that way. And and don't care that you can then point out the utter irrationality of they don't care. It does not have any emotional impact upon them. Therefore, it's not really relevant. And so when you look at the breakdown of the vote in Ohio specifically, and everybody's talking about how much more money the other side spent, and and of course, the, the language of the amendment is just utterly laughable. I mean, it's it's completely Orwellian. And again, the next generations don't care. Oh, it's Orwellian. I really haven't read that. Don't really know anything about it. So, okay, I don't really care. But it is. I mean, anyone who calls abortion any kind of reproductive health care is, is just not a person who has, who has any serious thinking capacity at all. But they don't care. And they vote they're not caring. And when you look at the breakdown, the only people who slightly voted against this, this 
shall we call fire down from heaven upon the entire state of Ohio measure? Um, was my generation. Well, actually, I guess I'm not in that generation. Uh, it was the 64-year-olds and above. I'm almost there. Uh, th- those are the only people that voted against it as a, as a group. And you get down to the 18 to 29-year-olds, and it's like 87, 90%, something like that. And how do you get that kind of continuity? Well, these are the people that have come from that educate that indoctrination system. And so we shouldn't be shocked or surprised. Everybody's like, I just can't believe this. I, I can. And unless there is a major, major change. I mean, we're, t- we're talking supernatural, third great awakening type change. Ah, sorry, it's done. <laughs> it's over with. As long as these, these people are voting and they have no moral or ethical character whatsoever, um, there you go. That's, that's how the gulags get formed. It's, this is what history tells us. This is what history tells us. And these people would vote in a second to imprison anyone who disagreed with them. Because it's morally good. Because morally means what feels right. And so we'll, we'll talk more about it uh, tomorrow, but it just, um, it didn't stun me. It didn't shock me. It just reminded me that we've been saying for a long time, what's it going to look like to live through the transitionary period from a system where we had laws to a system that's based upon the whims of man. Well, we're finding out no one could really, I mean, you could predict certain elements of it, but exactly how it was going to work out at what speed, at what time, on what subjects, no one could really tell. And now we're seeing it. Now we're seeing it. That's what we're watching. And so parents, we have to be explaining to our children um, what is worth giving up so much of our stuff for is is it worthwhile to suffer for truth that no one anymore even cares whether it's truth or not well might want to read a few sections out of jeremiah and ezekiel a few of the minor prophets um that directly address such things but we need to be doing that with our kids uh or in my case grandkids things like that Next thing, real quick, uh, before we go to Radio Free Geneva, um, the word broke. Uh, not quite uh, 24 hours ago, the Vatican has um, announced that uh, transgender people can be baptized, they can be godparents and witnesses at church weddings. Now, most people outside of Roman Catholicism don't think much about godparents and stuff like that, but the point is the reason that this was not allowed in the past was a moral and ethical one. It was a recognition of the uh, rebellion inherent in uh, transgenderism, homosexuality, issues along those lines. And I first saw it being announced by Roman Catholics going, are you kidding? Because any Roman Catholic that sits back and looks at this 
and reads any of the interviews, uh, press conferences, and things like that that came out of the Synod, which is just the beginning of a process. The next one's going to be next year. But everybody knows where it's going. You, you can tell by who was chosen, by the presentations, by the minimization of um, traditional voices. Uh, it, the word is that, that Francis is going to change the way in which his successor is going to be chosen uh, to allow women and lay people to vote. Now, by the way, up until, what was it, 10-something, uh, middle of the 11th century, the Bishop of Rome was always elected by the people of Rome. That's, that's how it was done. Um, but that, of course, changed radically uh, for a long period of time. So it's not like it's always been the same way, but most Roman Catholics think that it's been done the same way. And when you, when you think about, you know, then he gets to choose who's going to be involved with that. It's, it's like he's been watching how elections are done in Maricopa County. <laughs> it's, it's the, it's, um, any hope that conservative Roman Catholics have had uh, that there would be a swing back toward something called orthodoxy um, is being dashed right, left, and center, and it's it's a way to make sure. And this is how the this is how the left always works, whether it's in religion or politics. Look at California. What is California doing? What's Colorado doing? Uh, what are all these monoparty? Uh, we will make sure that things are going to continue going the way we want them to go. And that's what Francis is doing. And any, any conservative Roman Catholic who sits back with any semblance of fairness goes, it's obvious where Francis wants to go on issues of human sexuality. And once again, we're back to, and what are you supposed to do about it? And so, you know, I, I tweeted the, uh, I recall it's the BBC article on this. And I said, nothing you can do about it. You, you, you've bought the system and the system has parameters. And once you say we have an infallible interpreter who, you know, embodies tradition, and, you know, I've seen Roman Catholics saying, well, you know, the, the Holy Spirit will never allow Francis to promulgate error. He already has. Already has. Like we pointed out before, even one of the bishops pointed to the change on capital punishment in the Universal Catholic Catechism as something to look at in light of a change in how the Roman Church views the LGBTQ plus issues. They're the ones that pointed to it. We didn't, we pointed to it too, but y'all don't care about that. You've got people in your own communion going, well, hey, that seemed to work pretty well. And, uh, you know, that's uh, how our system works. Uh, so, and so what are you supposed to do about it? Well, Trent Horn saw my uh, tweet, evidently. And he uh, responded. And he said, um, 
How would Scripture answer these questions? One, can a mentally ill person be baptized? Two, can a mentally ill person be a godparent? Scripture is silent on godparents, as well as specific requirements for baptism. Your solution isn't sola scriptura, it's your own tradition. Wow, Trent, that was a face plant. I'm sorry, bro. <laughs> um, no. Uh, the only way that that can have any relevance to what I had posted is if you're making transgenders, transgen- transgenderism a mental illness. Now, I-, I would agree that it has characteristics of mental illness. No, no question about it. But when I when I when if, if someone were to ask the question, can a mentally ill person be baptized? Um, that would obviously be a pastoral decision of the elders of a church, which, by the way, is how the New Testament organized church. <laughs> said elders didn't have all these other offices and hierarchies and stuff like that. It wasn't there, um, and no foundation was provided for that. Uh, no um, qualifications for any of those other positions. Didn't even have a sacramental priesthood for that matter. But anyway, uh, so it'd be a pastoral matter, and it would be the determine. It would be something that the elders would have to determine as to the mental capacity of the individual, um, and their desire uh, to follow Christ as best they can. So I'm I'm talking Down syndrome situations here. I'm talking, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about manic schizophrenia or people that have to be locked up in a room where they're going to slice everybody's heads off um, on Tuesdays, but on Wednesdays they are passing out jack trick tracks. You know, I'm not talking about that. Um, but what does that have to do with someone who is in rebellion against God's creative order by claiming to be transgender? Now, again, we're not talking about quote-unquote, intersex people, we're talking about 99% of the people who are claiming to be transgender today. Uh, It's a social contagion. It's not a mental illness. It's uh, an illness of the soul. It's sin. It's rebellion. And the requirement for baptism is, uh, well, you know, when we baptize the younger kids, um, one of the things that I had never heard before, but I think it, it's good. It's similar to what my parents did with me. But uh, Jeff will say, um, is Jesus your boss? Does he get to tell you what to do? That's Lordship of Christ. Uh, do, you, do you submit to his ability to define what your life is to be? Um, and so that's, that's the issue. Can they understand that? What's their answer to that? Uh, it's about submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And again, godparents, stuff like that, um, not a part of my my tradition at all, so um, don't have any interest in it one way or the other. But to say Scripture is silent on godparents, well, duh, it's a human tradition, as well as specific requirements for baptism. No, no, no it's not. <laughs> we, have, we have very clear requirements for baptism. Um, the object of faith, uh, the issue of repentance, uh, understanding of sin, it, it's, it's, all, it's all over. Uh, it's, it's in Acts. It's, it's the, uh, 
the assumption of the epistles in regards to when, when Paul, for example, will make reference to the fact that all of the Christians he's writing to are individuals who have had the same experience of, uh, of baptism. And so he can refer to that baptism and say, you know, there's one faith, one baptism, and you've all been baptized. And what does that mean? There's all sorts of clear, obvious requirements there. So it does speak to that. So when you say your solution isn't sola scriptura, it's your own tradition, you totally miss the, not, not only miss the counter-argument, but you totally miss the point. My point is, your tradition is defined by your current Bishop of Rome, period. You don't get to disagree with him. I can point back to 1592 say, see that? There's your catechism. That's after what you call an ecumenical council. That represents their teachings. And your current pope has just turned that around. It says X. The current pope says not X. Okay? That's a contradiction in your supposedly infallible teaching. But you've got nothing you can do about it. You can't go, well, um, Francis, you seem to have uh, missed, you know, minimally of... you know, 500 years of our tradition, and it's longer than that, actually. You can't say that. You can't correct him. You've made him the infallible vicar of Christ. And so you can't complain when he exercises that authority. Even when he does it, and see, the thing that's killing you, and you all know it, the things that the thing that's killing you is... You had it sort of set up to, well, he can't come out and say, we used to believe this, but now we believe that. He's doing it the way the leftists do it. He's, he's a good liberation theologian. This is how they worked all the time. And so he's, he's doing it in such a way that, you know, well, we're just, we're just making the, more, the church more inclusive and open and loving. And... I, as I've said uh, on Twitter this morning, just look at the look at the European nations, look at the state churches. I had some poor benighted Roman Catholic fellow saying, because I mentioned I, I had said, look at the mainline denominations, look at the European churches. This is how they did it, and where has it led? Now they have their rainbow stoled priestesses, and you're headed the same direction, and you know it. Just listen to the questions being asked in the Synod and the answers being proposed. In fact, listen to the way the questions are being asked. That's so often a dead giveaway. I mean, in the political process, I didn't watch the debate last night, but uh, I didn't even know what was going on. I just don't really care. Um, But I saw some clips afterwards, and, and when you listen to these people, I think NBC was doing it. Yes. Um, and I saw the uh, Hindu guy uh, go, going after, I guess one of, the, one of the moderators is one of the main people that had pushed the Russia collusion hoax. He went after her on that. I thought it was great. Wonderful. The point is, everybody knows those people, quote unquote, moderating that ask the questions. It's the spin of the question that determines what it's going to look like to the audience. Read the questions that the Synod 
is putting out. It's the same thing. It's the same playbook, and you all know it. That's a, I, You're smart people. You all see this. You know it. And you're sitting there beating your head against the wall because there ain't nothing you can do about it. There is nothing you can do about it. And my point was, you gave up the mechanism of reforming the system when you anathematized Sola Scriptura. You lost the unchanging, objective revelation from God. You lost the voice of Christ and replaced it with the voice of the church. And now there ain't nothing you can do about it. And you sat back the whole time going, oh, that could never change, could never change, and now it's changing. And you don't know what to do about it. And it's frustrating. I know I wouldn't want to be a Catholic apologist these days. But anyway, so I wanted to respond to those things faster than I did. <laughs> but once I get going, uh, things things happen. So um, you ready over there, uh, Mr. Pierce? All right, let's... Uh, Let's get the addicts uh, their fix, and let's get to Radio Free Geneva. people that are Calvinists harp on this. God sovereign, God sovereign, God sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. They just keep repeating it, and they repeat it so much you start to think it's a biblical truth. Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus said, I can't. I'm dead. <laughs> That's not what he did. Lazarus came out. To me, to tell me a dead person can respond to the command of Christ. And then you take lessons from Judas White and Jeff Durkin. It shows in this kind of sequential format. And <laughs> Do you really believe that it parallels? the method of exegesis that we utilize to demonstrate those other things? Um, no. Some new Calvinists, even pastors, very openly smoke pipes and cigars just as they drink beer and wine. Even Jesus cannot override your unbelief. And you need to realize that he's gone from predeterminism. Now he's speaking of some kind of middle knowledge that God now has to... I deny and categorically deny middle knowledge. Don't uh, beg the question that would demand me to force you to e embrace it. You're not always talking about necessarily God choosing something for no apparent reason, but you're choosing that meat because it's a favorable meat. There's a reason to have the choice of that meat. 
from our underground bunker deep beneath the faculty cafeteria at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, safe from all those moderate Calvinists, Dave Hunt fans, and those who have read and reread George Bryson's book, we are Radio Free Geneva, broadcasting the truth about God's freedom to save for his own eternal glory. And that Tassie quote is still the hardest thing to listen to. <laughs> Yeah, we probably. I, I think. I, I think Tim said he was working on a uh, version a while back. Um, everybody wants Ergen back. Everybody wants uh, standing on your feet, standing on your hands, stand on your feet, stand on a stump, whatever. Yeah, everybody wants that uh, that back in there. So yeah, there are a couple quotes that I don't even know who they are. So we could replace them and, and put Ergen back in there. So I think I should know all the quotes in the in Radio Free Geneva theme. I think that probably should be. Uh, a necessary uh, element of things. Um, even though I, I always just put my head down and cover my face with the Steve Tassi thing. Because <laughs> I remember feeling guilty because it was not my turn to speak. But when he said that, I was like, I had had enough. It was, that was a long night. That was, a, that was, a, that was 2016. I cannot believe the stuff I did in 2016. I traveled the world. That was my best year on bike, running, everything. It was like, that was it. It's all been downhill since then. <laughs> Woo! <coughs> anyway, Radio Free Geneva, we're back. Uh, Jason Breda, um, we, uh, last week, yeah, last week, uh, did Radio Free Geneva, and we started off, and we're looking at John chapter 6, and I have explained... Uh, a number of the um, um, basic errors being made in the presentation. For those of you that didn't see it, uh, Jason is uh, a self-described former Calvinist, a Calvinist for 10 years. And then he studied the issue, and he has come to see uh, that Calvinism um, really denigrates the character of God and, and things like this. Now, now, obviously, those of us who are Calvinists and have heard all of these things before, many, many times before, and have interacted with every flavor of former Calvinist uh, rhetoric, uh, books, debates, interviews, the whole nine yards. We have seen over and over again when people say they were a Calvinist and now they're not a Calvinist, and you ask why, and they start having to represent Calvinism, you just go, you believe that as a Calvinist? And that was what initially attracted someone, I don't remember who it was, sorry. Uh, I, I may have said initially when I res respond, I remember where I was uh, on the road, but I may have said who sent it to me initially, I don't remember. But that was what initially caused me to want to respond as I started listening to this and I'm like, but a Calvinist doesn't speak that way. A Calvinist doesn't speak. And, and this is a situation where it's someone who's freshly out of Calvinism. I, I could understand if I was a Calvinist 35 years ago and, you know, uh, hey, the memory, memory starts going. I do understand that. But that's not the case here. That's not the situation we're looking at. So I had responded to some things he had said, and specifically I had seen as I had traced through his presentation some stuff on john 6 so i focused in on that and i 
put up the graphic that he had put on his screen. I think there were like eight points on it. I just just walked through them and said, no, this is not, that's not true because of this, and that's not true because of that. And, and then I invited him to respond, which it took a few weeks to do because I think um, he does put a lot of time into his videos. Um, there's a lot of uh, graphics and editing, and, and, and I know how long that takes. But he did, and um, in the process, uh, said that the original language of the passage uh, proves 100% that Calvinism is wrong in various things that it says. And, um, you know, the one thing you'd, you'd have to give the Calvinists um, is historically they're real big on the original languages. Um, you know, for example, we played last time some of the things he said about there being no argument for limited atonement, particular redemption, and I wrote to him and asked, so when did you read John Owen's The Death of Death and The Death of Christ when you were a Calvinist? Um, well, I have a copy. I haven't read all of it. Okay. It's this kind of thing that that makes us go, why? 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 Why do this kind of stuff? Because there are all sorts of arguments for particular redemption, and I've made them for decades, and there's entire books from Heaven He Came and Sought Her. Um, which, by the way, I just shouldn't mention in passing. Um, I played that portion last time where he said, Calvin didn't even believe it. There's an entire chapter in that book on Calvin's testimony to that. And I mentioned Roger Nicole's uh, article because it's previous, more my generation. But you can make the argument. From my perspective, it doesn't matter. It wasn't the argument of his day at all. That wasn't what the focus was on issues like free will and election and predestination. And the next generations start putting all that together and, and uh, going from there. But you can make... There are a number of quotes that you can quote where you can make a case that Calvin was consistent at that point. It just wasn't a major topic of controversy at the time. Anyway, but there's entire books out there that he didn't even seem to be familiar with. And so that's one of the things we deal with on Radio Free Geneva is, you know, if you're going to be a Calvinist for all those years, maybe it might be best to have been a well-read one. Uh, because that would be very helpful. But then the big thing was original language. And like I said, uh, long history of a... In fact, if anything, to be honest with you, one of the common objections against Reformed theology today by like independent fundamentalist Baptists, people like that, is it's too scholarly. They They keep talking about Greek and Hebrew. And so here you get someone saying, yes, but if you look at the Greek and the Hebrew, it doesn't say what Calvinists say. And those of us that have looked at the Greek and the Hebrew and taught Greek and Hebrew and spent many years listen to you and go, you don't read Greek or Hebrew, do you? And after he listened to the last dividing line, to the last Radio Free Geneva, he said on Twitter, yeah, I do not read uh, Greek. And I would assume that would also mean he doesn't read Hebrew either. And so, if you don't read Greek, 
it's best not to put out one hour and 26 minute long videos uh, talking about what the Greek says. <laughs> because uh, someone might take the time to come along and go, yeah, no. So we've already talked about the fact that he confuses. He can, he'll go present indicative active as if that's a tense. Uh, it's tense mode and voice. And then a look at uh, participles. And I think one of the things that may have misled him is the blue letter Bible thing. Its major category for participles is verb. But obviously, anybody who knows anything about Greek participles knows that it can function as a substantive, especially when it has the article. And so the participle is this wonderfully flexible... Um, I've described it... I've described it this way. The... Um, the participle puts the colors into the palette of the artist painting with Greek. Now, some of you hate participles. Now, hate me. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I'll, I'll tell you. Know what my weak spot is in Greek? Infinitives. I don't know why. Everybody's got their strong spots. Everybody's got their weak spots. Um, infinitives have always driven me batty. But participles, I, I just love them. Uh, especially the syntax of participles, stuff like that. So, there you go. I, I, I've given you the background. What we started doing is demonstrating that there's some, some real fundamental misunderstandings. And so this next section is where a lot of them are expressed and then built upon. So what, what you can learn from this is the danger of using online resources or Logos or Accordance or whatever without actually being instructed in the fundamentals of the language. And you can end up building an entire case that's made out of sand. It's that it, it, the slightest breeze comes along and it all blows away. That's what's uh, happening here. So we will pick up uh, where I said we would pick up last time. Um, it, it's, we tested it beforehand, so put what back? We'll find out here in a second. Now, what I want you to see is what is being explained and clearly explicitly in the text and what is not in the text. There is no mention of the word chosen, elect, beforehand, sovereign grace, or any of those things. Nor is there need to be. C completely irrelevant, uh, fallacious argumentation. Um, look at the verse on the screen. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'll by no means cast out. Uh, the word security does not occur, occur here, and yet that's one of the clearest assertions of the security of believer that there is. Uh, the word sovereignty doesn't appear, but the Father gives men to the Son. Um, the uh, all-sufficiency of Christ as Savior is not there, but... They are given to him, um, and he will by no means cast them out. So, putting up a list of words that don't appear is fallacious argumentation. Um, I, last time I pointed out, my Muslim friends will not believe in the deity of Christ unless a particular formula appears. 
uh, in the text of Scripture. And you have to press back and say, you don't have to have a specific formula if the argument and the statement is there. So this is a fallacious argumentation and should be rejected as fallacious argumentation. And it's not just here in John chapter 6. It's not anywhere in the Gospel of John. Now, there is an expression that the Calvinists would lean on, which is before the foundation of the world. And John and Jesus used this in John chapter 17. Well, so what? We're, we're exegeting John chapter 6. John chapter 17 has a lot about God's sovereignty and salvation, um, the eternal relationship of the, of the Father and the Son, uh, Jesus as high priest, you know, all this other stuff. But what does that have to do with John 6? It, it doesn't. 17 verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me, the Son, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. Now, be careful when you, when you put it that way. Um, who was loved before the foundation of the world? Not the incarnate Messiah who hadn't come into existence yet. You, you have the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. But the reason I say you have to be careful here is oneness people will come along. And they try to reduce these texts to the idea of the incarnate Son. The idea of the coming incarnation. Where it can somehow function. So that, that, that way, the Son, because remember, for the oneness folks, the Son as a divine person doesn't exist. Um, there's only one divine person. They're Unitarians. And so the Son is an idea that will come to fruition in the future. But he did not exist in eternity past. So you've got to be very careful with the language that you, uh, that you use here. So the element uh, before the foundation of the world would have been clear for John to draw from. Okay, so I just want to make this point. So, again, it's fallacious argumentation to say, well, John could have said this, or John could have said, and I hear people doing this all the time. I try to avoid it as much as possible, because it is fallacious argumentation. You're literally saying, if, if the author were to be making the point that I'm disagreeing with, he would have had to use my language to do so. Um, and again, that's just not the case. Stick with what, as you yourself say, Jason, stick with what the text says. This is one of those places where you can't stick with what the text says, and so you're bringing other stuff in. You, you violate your own hermeneutical principles. That it would have been very easy for John to use in John chapter 6, it, saying something like this. He could have said, all that the Father has given me before the foundation of the world will come to the Son. Okay, now notice it says Calvinist perspective. Okay, I don't know a Calvinist in the world that's ever put it this way. The question is... When does the Father give men to the Son? The text actually grammatically answers that question. Because when, when it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, the giving of the Father is before the coming to the Son. So you, you can't, the, 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 the way around that for Jason is to turn John 6 on its head, same thing Norman Geister did, jump down to verse 45, Ignore that verse 45 is describing the nature of the drawing 
and it's the father that's doing all of these things, ignore that part, insert an idea of free will, say, oh, these are all the people who already are worshiping God the Father out of their own free will, and they're the ones given to the Son. And so as a result of being given, they will come. Again, we pointed out last time, upon what basis do you actually teach that someone who has the moral goodness, humility, spiritual insight, to rightfully worship God the Father without any kind of divine grace producing that worship, why could they not then come to the Son? What is it about the Son that makes him harder to come to than to the Father? So, that would have to mean, for example, because the context here is is the Jews that had come across the, the lake, and they had seen the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus says to them, you don't believe. You don't believe. And here are individuals who have given every, every indication of being followers of God the Father. But why can't they come to the Son? Well, it's not been given to you by the Father. But this whole idea is, but the Father will give everyone to the Son who first chooses themselves to be followers of the Father, or something like that. I don't know. Um, but so, n- nobody has said it has to say this. If someone were to ask me, when did the giving of the Father to the Son take place? I would say, John 6 doesn't answer that. Ephesians 1 does. And we can go to Ephesians 1 and answer the question that specifically says that we were predestined before time began. But no one has said that John 6 is addressing that. So, notice when it's not actually what the text says or is saying. And it doesn't have to be more utterly fallacious argumentation. He could have said that in the text, but that's not what he says. He doesn't say that. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not cast out. Okay, so... That's what we see here in the text. That type of language is not used anywhere else before the foundation world, anywhere else in the Gospel of John. So we need to be careful. Okay, just I just want to just point out, many times what people do is when you have a really weak case, what you do is prove all sorts of things that no one's disputing. Okay? None of us have made the argument, well, in John chapter 6, it has to have this language. No one's made that argument. So what you do is you just you just you look like you're disproving all this stuff when no one's actually making that argument at all. Um, that's the thing that bothers me here is that 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 happens a lot, and um, it shouldn't be. For on what words we end up putting onto the text that are not clearly there, and you'll hear when you hear this, you you'll hear a lot of Calvinistic pastors use. God's sovereign choice of election for these people. They, you know, he's drawn them to them, effectually caused them to believe and to have faith. And it's by his sovereign grace and all these things that are not in the text. But here in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That word all is a collective word for all the elect. What this is saying is, Okay, so collected word, I think he said collective, but collected word, where does the text say this is the elect? Um, 
because they're given by the Father to the Son? <laughs> um, I, I mean, we, we are allowed to uh, connect John 6 with um, John 8, John 10, uh, John 17, and then the rest of the New Testament, right? So that's, that's, what he's, that's what he's doing. He's saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And since the elect come to Christ, then that is a true statement. No one's saying the term is used right there. doesn't have to be. Again, more fallacious argumentation. It's, it's like, uh, well, we, we really can't know what the text is saying. No, we, we can. He is explaining the unbelief of the Jews. And he says, all the Father gives me will come to me. And then when he explains that later on, he's going to say, no one come to me as far as him draws him. He explains what the drawing is, 645, and then he repeats it in 665, unless it has been given to him by the Father. And so, we understand this to be of the elect. Those that Paul, for example, he says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Um, terms of election, predestination, the golden chain of redemption, all those types of things. Uh, unless you're saying, well, when you're preaching in John, you can't make reference to those things. Oh, okay, if you want to say that. Before any sinner ever came to Christ, before any sinner is drawn... Notice it says, Calvinist pastors are adding to Scripture. Um, no, they're not. They are drawing from all of Scripture. Um, he's, not, he's not saying these words were found there and we're not translating them correctly. No, he's giving you a much broader theological application of the text. That's, that's all. By the Father to Christ, God had already given... Let's see over the side. He says, this is a good example of a pastor telling people what the text is saying without explaining what it's saying or how they drew the conclusion. But, Jason, you do the exact same thing. You don't seem to recognize it. But you do it fallaciously with bad argumentation and bad Greek. So you're doing the same thing. Um, uh, so how do, you, how do you respond to that? And those to the Son. And the reason God had given them to the Son is because God had already chosen them by Himself and for Himself. Uh, <laughs> God chose the elect by Himself? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Well, who, did, who would He have to ask about? The angels? What, 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 do you, what do you mean? If they're God's elect, how could it be otherwise? And what about all the verses explaining the Father and the Son are working together? They share the one being that is God? Maybe? Uh, John 14, they, the Father and the Son make their abode uh, with believers by the presence of the Holy Spirit? Trinitarian act? I don't get the confusion here. That choice was made before the foundation of the world. They're not. They're not in the text. So you're not actually, you're, you're bringing on a systematic and a belief system onto the text, and it's not clearly mentioned in the text. And pastors, teachers, preachers, please stop doing stuff like this. Uh, Jason, please, please stop doing stuff like this, because you're doing the exact same thing, but you don't even seem to recognize it. You are bringing your synergism in, you're bringing your free willism in, and you don't seem to realize it.
all all Steve Lawson was doing was bringing together numerous threads. But at least he was doing so about the same subject. Unlike what you did at the beginning of this video where you spent the first half hour on stuff that really wasn't directly relevant to the exegesis of John 6. So we got to deal with what the text actually says. So my my admonition to you is to be faithful to what the text is clearly speaking to. Don't insert your preference of theology onto the text when it doesn't explicitly say that. Mm -hmm. And here I'm going to draw out even further why it doesn't explicitly say that. So first of all, nowhere else in scripture is there any other reference to the statement of all that the Father gives me? It's only here in John, okay? So, okay, now we're going to find out what the relevance of that is, that is, right? We can't use this expression anywhere else in Scripture, so we have to understand, truly understand the context of John, right? So, I, I don't get that. Okay, so it's not used anyplace else. There's lots of Hapax legomenoi, and when you when you expand it to a phrase, there's many, many, many of them. So you can't connect that to you. You can't look at what John says about a particular people being given by the Father, the Son, and connect that to Ephesians or Romans eight and nine, or they, these all have to be separated from one another. It, so there is no systematic theology that is derived from biblical theology? I'm, I'm not even sure what the objection is there. Um, anyway. Now we look at John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. All that the Father gives me. This is a present active indicative tense. Okay? Present active means that the action is taken by the person. So the coming to Jesus is done by the person because they have are they already have the Father. Okay. okay. Now here's where you you start talking about Greek verb tenses and then make then leap to theological conclusions when you you don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Um, so once again, let me. Um, So, all that the Father gives me will come. So that's that's a future, future, finite verb, future active indicative. Will come to me, and it is after all that the Father gives me. Now, last time we pointed out that Jason has this. Jason doesn't understand that the present tense has a lot of uses in the New Testament. Uh, historical, narratival, gnomic, there's, there's all kinds of different present tenses. And unless there is something in the context that specifically demands an emphasis upon continuous action, and, I, and I've argued that I think in John there is. The, the fact that John purposefully over the course of the entire book uh, contrasts the aorist use of belief, always resulting in actual unbelief, uh, with the present, whether it's participle or verbal form, um, I think is significant. 
Outside of that, it's the, I have my blue letter Bible open and it says this exegesis is, is not good. Um, and then, it, so, you, so you have the, the broad statement, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So if, if Jason was doing exegesis here, the first question across his mind would be, why is, does he go from a present active didomy um, to the future? And that would be the first thing that would be asked. And the answer would be, the one action determines the reality and the instantiation of the second action. The giving of the Father determines the coming to the Son. All the Father gives me will come to me. So the Father's giving is prior to. Now, I would argue the Father's giving is free. If you want to try to argue that there is some compulsion here, that these individuals have fulfilled some kind of condition, then you need to provide that from the text. And that'll never be done because it's not there. Uh, But the idea is, well, actually, yeah, it's there because there were these people and they really did follow after God the Father and they did it freely and they did it by their own free will and there was no decree involved. And since they chose to follow the Father, then the Father chooses based upon their freely loving him and following him to give them to the Son. So the actual controlling factor in identifying who it is who will be given to Jesus again becomes the actions of man. It's what it's if if man chooses to follow the Father, then the Father will give those people to the Son. That seems to be the argument. But if you just stick with the text, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then the next part that he brings up is uh, another, uh, right here is another participle. The one coming to me, I will certainly not cast out. And so the, the two clauses emphasize God's sovereignty because he can give to the Son. And that sovereign action results in all of those so given. So, by the way, let me point out, if someone freely chooses, they just free will, they're, they're autonomous. If they autonomously choose to follow the Father, and the Father then gives them to the Son, can they not freely choose not to follow the Son? See, they, they freely chose to follow God the Father, why could they not then freely choose not to follow the Son? But the problem is, the passage says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So it's the giving the Father that determines who comes to the Son. There's no question about that. In fact, once you read John 6.44, there's no way around this. 
the giving of the Father is what results in the coming of anyone to Christ. And the one coming to me as a result of having been given by the Father, I will never cast out. And then the explanation is given, why will I never cast them out? Because I've come down of heaven, not do my own will, the will of him who sent me, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, and he's going to mention something about this later on, um, but the all there is in the neuter, and he doesn't seem to be aware of the fact uh, that the neuter is used to wrap up groups into singular holes. And so that's why it's in the neuter. It's not that it's a becomes an impersonal group. Um, but the, the people given in verse 39, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So this is the power of the Savior. This is the power of Jesus. Um, here's, he will fulfill the will of the Father. That of all that he's given me, I will lose none of it. But I will raise it up on the last day. So that group is going to be raised up on the last day because the Father has given that group to the Son. There's nothing here about their fulfilling anything, being choice meets, um, being more humble, nothing like that. This is the power of the Father and the Son to bring about the salvation of a particular people. And very clearly, 37 and 39 directly connected together, that of all that he has given me. So, to raise him up in the last day then becomes paralleled to, I will certainly not cast out. So, who receives eternal life? Who will never be cast out? Those who are given by the Father of the Son. Um... There it is. Uh, laid out very distinctly for us. Um, how far long am I here? I wanted to go longer today, but my wife got a seat on a standby flight. And um, when you've been married for 41 years, you do not leave your wife at the airport for extensive periods of time. Um, so let me just look at this graphic again real quickly. Um, he has comes, present active tense, doesn't seem to recognize its participle, uh, or common on. Um, present active, the person, that is the subject in this example, anyone, the person. So I, I guess the idea is, he seems to think that the present tense emphasizes some um, individual capacity or something, uh, as if there's no deadness of man and sin, and it's not even addressing any of that stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's the person who comes. No one's arguing that. No, no one's saying that non-persons come to Jesus or non-persons are given by the Father the Son. That wouldn't make any sense. But why emphasize these things? Um, because he's trying to find stuff in the Blue Letter Bible that the text doesn't actually say. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you know the Father, you know me. If you believed in the Father, believe also in me. 
if you're a true worshiper of God, you will believe me. And you see this woven throughout. And if you would know the Father, if you would have known the Father, you would know me also. You would know that I have come from the Father. That's what. Okay, so here's the whole idea again. As long as you have known the Father, as long as uh, you've freely chosen to be a worshiper of the one true God, um, what he just said is, then you will know me. Then why do you need to be drawn? Again, you, you have this strange, um, it should just be natural. There shouldn't be, what, why is Jesus driving all these people away in John chapter 6? By repeatedly, repeatedly saying to them, and he was saying to them, repeatedly, no one can come to me unless it's been granted them from the Father. And see, they're offended at Jesus' the, Jesus' centrality in his teaching. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. They're offended. I'm the source of eternal life. I'm the source of spiritual life. I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. They're offended by this. And so, but if they were worshipers of God the Father, why could they not freely follow Jesus? Because Jesus said they can't. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up in the last day. Well, the problem is raising him up in the last day is verse 39. That's those given by the Father to the Son. It's divine election again. It's not this, well, as long as you know God the Father, then you're just automatically going to do this. It is true, if you don't have the Father, you're not going to have the Son, vice versa. They're a package deal. That's extremely important, but that's because of the nature of the revelation in the incarnation and the work of the Spirit who draws God's people into himself. I really wanted to get farther than that. I apologize, but like I said, um, I got halfway through that section. So, and I ha I already ha I've had a clip queued up with um, uh, Frank Turek. So we will we will press forward. Just sort of getting a backlog of stuff here because uh, we've now we have the rest of Muhammad Job and we've got Jared Longshore. No connection between the two, I assure you. Um, uh, so we're getting a little backlog of stuff. That's why we're going to do another program tomorrow and try to catch up on at least some of it, but probably going to have to put some of it off till next week as well. But like I said, when your wife manages to get a seat on the early flight she was shooting for, you uh, you get done um, as close to on time as you possibly can. So uh, thanks for watching Dividing Line today. We will uh, see you again tomorrow. Not exactly sure when, but we'll let you know on the app. Got to download the app. We'll see you next time. God bless. Theological Seminary, safe from all those moderate Calvinists, Dave Hunt fans, and those who have read and reread George Bryson's book. We are Radio Free Geneva, broadcasting the truth about God's freedom to save for His own eternal glory.